Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am, there it is, (laughs) to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I know a lot about doing introductions to podcasts, but I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes, and so we're here to learn. I'm joined, I cannot even believe this is happening. This is a lovely day, people. Some days are special, but some days are more special than others. I'm joined today by the man, the myth, the legend. It's Hope Charters. Hope, how are you? I am a woman, not a man. <laughs> yes, I am here. It doesn't flow as well. You're right. The woman, <laughs> the myth. I got a, the legend, Hope Charters. What's up, Hope? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm excited to be back. It's been a long time. I think this is the first time you've been on a show with me this year. You were on the Freedom Seekers one, the great episode we did on the uh, Underground Railroad curriculum, um, which I will link to in the show notes. But I don't think we have we have podcastily hung out in a bit. Yeah, it's uh, the pandemic has been pretty rough. I haven't felt like being on a podcast, not going to lie. <laughs> well, neither have I, but here I am every other week. No, this is great. Actually, this has been the, uh, the, the proverbial port in a storm. Uh, this has been um, <laughs> the uh, the cherry on top of the bleep Sunday that is 2020, um, and you just seek out the cherry. Uh, anyway, really, not much has changed since you left, except for one important thing, and that thing is we are preparing for the Lakeys. I don't know. Do you know about the Lakeys? No, please tell me about the Lakeys. I feel like I've heard about them, but I don't know exactly what you're planning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that either. I just know we're having Lakeys. All right, this is the thing is we're having Lakeys. And what the Lakeys are, they are our award show. They are probably not the least prestigious Great Lakes related award show um, that there is. And so this is going to be probably our last show of the year, unless like the book club episode, we just keep delaying it for various reasons, in which case the Lakeys will happen. Who knows? But no, these are happening in December. This is going to be our, our year wrap up. This is the first annual lakeys we're gonna have a bunch of people on there but what we need is we need you listener right now pause this well don't pause it yet because you haven't heard what to do after i tell you what to do then you're gonna pause it and go to uh, bitly.com slash lakeys 21 that's l-a-k-i-e-s 21 and you need to nominate some stuff for the lakeys we have a lot of categories we have the uh science communication of the year we have like the outreach program of the year the great lakes news of the year the great lakes science podcast of the year non-teacher about the great lakes edition the uh general podcast is that i think podcast of the year might be there's a ton of categories great lakes animal of the year and the one i want to talk about today which is uh great lakes non-animal of the year so we have a a nominee for great lakes non-animal of the year and uh, that nominee is the oyster mushroom it's a nominee have you had an oyster mushroom hope i have not also though when you're sending people to urls you should probably get the url right it's not bitly.com it's bit.ly yeah another thing is when you're correcting your supervisor you should make sure that your correction is accurate Did you actually get a bit.ly.com? That's weird. Yeah, just go ahead and paste that into your browser right now. Right now. Just paste oh, it in. Paste all right. It in. I'm going to try go it. Go paste that in. <laughs> all right. Hold on. Do, 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 do. All right. Bitly.com. Holy cow. He knows oh, what he's doing. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is why I've missed having you on. <laughs> I'm a train wreck. <laughs> no, it's good. It's all good stuff. So, or you can go to bit.ly slash Lakey's 21. That's fine. So, you know about oyster mushrooms hope (laughs) no i do not know about these mushrooms wait are they oysters or are they mushrooms no they're mushrooms that's a good question right they would be mushroom oysters otherwise either way they sound disgusting because i like neither oysters nor mushrooms i'm not gonna lie oh 
the the nominee well, i'm going to tell you what the nomination says here oyster mushrooms which are not aquatic as we both know obviously but they're native to the region and this is a direct quote from the nomination totally delicious totally delicious and then on top of that this is actually really interesting they have a lot of promise in terms of the uh, uh bioremediation of pollutants so that's cool you can use mushrooms and it's called myco remediation i'll put some links to it mica mica remediation i can't remember anyway you can use mushrooms to try to pull some pollutants out of the the uh ground so that's that is really cool and that is why they were nominated for uh, a lakey is because you know they're they're tasty they're local and um, you can use them to remediate pollutants. And so, you know, that's an important thing. Wait, so it sounds to me like you use mushrooms to pull pollutants out of the ground, but then you're also saying that you can eat them. So why would you want to eat the pollutants? No, no, you don't. Uh, I don't know a ton about mushroom bioremediation, but no, you don't eat those. <laughs> so you grow a whole separate one. Don't look up where mushrooms are grown, though. Just don't do that, like the white button mushrooms. Um, and But if you don't like them, it'll be fine. Uh, anyway, and then some species, I also found out uh, some species even glow in the dark, which I did not know. So I'm gonna not not gonna lie. Animal of the year and non-animal of the year are some of our most contentious categories. Wait, so what's what's up in the in the ranks for animal of the year? We well, just have to tune into Lakeys to find out. I'm not gonna tell you that. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> But that's a great question, Hope, and I'm glad you asked that. And the answer is, is, uh, you know, the oyster mushrooms are a great non-animal, but will they win the lakey? Tune in to find out. And if you're not a big oyster mushroom fan, like, you know, some of the people on this very episode, then nominate your own lakey. Go to bit.ly.com slash lakeys21 and do it. Just do it. Or bit.ly slash lakeys21. We don't even care. We believe in URL diversity. Uh, so do that. Pretty excited about our interview today. Her name is uh, Dr. Kelly Robinson. She's an assistant professor um, at the Quantitative Fisheries Center in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife in Michigan State. And she does a lot of work on um, decision analysis or structured decision making. And I, I kind of know what that is. And I kind of know that it's important. But, you know, uh, I also know that we need uh, to learn more about it, or at least I do. So there's a lot for me to learn. So let's go ahead and bring on Kelly. <music> And so we'll just talk about your work kind of generally and, and what goes into it and what, what we've learned from it and um, just, you know, anything else. I just found out you did a submersible, so we'll probably talk about that too um, because that, I don't know, from the outside, I don't know that you'll ever do anything cooler than that again in your career. Oh, no, no, I definitely won't. <laughs> I peaked in grad school for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I hear you there. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, well, actually, why don't we just, tell me about the submersible. So, you, so you're, you, you were like a marine scientist, right, in, in grad school. And um, how does that end up with you in a submersible? Because I went to graduate school and studied some marine stuff, but I did not end up in a submersible. So I was doing it wrong. What did I do wrong, I guess? Um, I don't know. I think I really lucked out with the, my advisor that I was working with. So um, my, I was in grad school at the College of Charleston in the marine biology program, getting my master's. And my study organism was the barrel fish, which is a, a fish that's found in, in deep waters around the area called the Charleston Bump, which is about 100 miles offshore from South Carolina. Um, and we really don't didn't know much about it. We, we would start catching them when they're, you know, I don't know, five years old or older. So um, there's a lot of hypotheses about, you know, what's going on with the younger age classes of these fish. I mean, to cut to the chase, we still don't really know. I didn't learn that from the submersible. But my advisor was um, George Sedberry, who was a, a scientist at the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. And he had been doing some um, work with the NOAA Ocean Exploration Program, 
And this is a, it was a really cool program. I think it's still ongoing. Certainly all of this stuff is still online for it, where um, it's, it's kind of allows marine scientists to go out and do research exploring the ocean, but we do it in such a way that it can be useful for like K-12 teachers to, to teach about different aspects of the ocean or fish or, or whatever we're working on. So the one that we were studying or working on was called the estuary to the abyss. So we did transects uh, from kind of shallower waters all the way to uh, the area around the Charleston bump that Georgia had been studying for a number of years, uh, looking at how it, it um, affects fish that are important for fisheries, like um, some of these lesser known things like barrel fish, but also other more important fishes that, that we tend to catch. So um, as part of that, we did two submersible dives a day. I got to do one of those dives. <laughs> I think it was about a 10 day cruise. It's myself and some other grad students, some other folks that worked at, um, at South Carolina DNR. We did um, submersible dives. We did other sorts of sampling, that, all of which I can't remember now because that was quite a long time ago. <laughs> um, and we wrote up little you know, blurbs about the stuff we were doing to post on that ocean exploration website so that teachers could use that for, for teaching. For those of us who maybe don't know what a submersible is, can you explain what it is? Yeah, I can back up. Um, <laughs> So, a, yeah, the submersible, the one that we worked, we were on was the Johnson Sea Link, which is um, housed on the RV Seward Johnson, which is, if you've ever seen a picture of like a, it looks like a submarine, but it's got a giant glass bubble on the front of it. Um, it's used for a lot of different types of, of underwater research, uh, obviously. And um, you can see in the front of it, there's someone who's driving it in this bubble and there's a scientist sitting next to them. But little did you know, there's also two people that sit in the back of this thing with a porthole that's the size of about a dinner plate. <laughs> that's where I was. Wait, I'm looking at this thing now. No, this is, that's how big, oh, I'm going to put this link in the show notes. I'll paste it in the little chat thing, Hope. Sure, yeah. You were in that? Yeah. Underwater? And, uh, I was in the back of it. So, um <sighs> It has a back? It looks it like back. it's just all one thing. I can look at the picture with you. But yeah, it's um, so the front of it, yeah, is, is where the scientist and the driver sits. And if you were to look at the back of it, you would see um, that there's room for two more people. There's another person who helps with running the submersible and then another scientist back there. Yeah, so you're looking at a porthole, but I mean, it's like the coolest porthole that you've ever looked at. <laughs> so <laughs> we went down um, a thousand meters or 3000 feet to you know, basically kind of see what was going on on, on the ocean floor. Um, and I, I can try to find some links to what we were doing too, so I can send it to you. But yeah, it was really neat. You know, we we turn off the, all the lights so you could see the bioluminescence on the way down. And then we got to see um, some, some barracks species of fish and, and lots of different kinds of cool invertebrates and, and things that you've never seen before. Um, you can also use that submersible to take samples of things on the ocean floor. So we have brought in some really cool sea creatures to, to um, document and archive and and use for different um, projects. So it's just a really neat experience. I mean, you know, I was in the back, so it wasn't quite as amazing as that 360 degree bubble, but it still was, um, as you said at the beginning, the coolest thing I'll ever get to do in science. So. Yeah, on a day literally where William Shatner is, is, is about to get launched into space. Right. You know, it's a good reminder that we have so much to do kind of uh, at home too, in terms of exploration. This is for sure. Yeah, this is cool. So you do not want to go in a submersible. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. You do not want to go if you have any kind of claustrophobia. I'm assuming. No, no, you don't. I, I was concerned because I do have a tendency to get uh, motion sickness. And, you know, I've heard stories when you're trying to retrieve the thing, if the water is too rough, you kind of basically have to bob around in the water until 
they can, it calms down so they can get you back out of the water. So they're very, you know, cautious about launching the thing if, if they expect that the weather is going to change at all. But, um, and you kind of have to, uh, didn't drink any water for a while beforehand. So. <laughs> I hope you did not puke on the other three people that were sitting. No, I did not. I, <laughs> there was concern, but I, I was totally fine. Um, but I, I think it was probably about three or four hours that it took to you know get in, get down there and come back up. So so is it a barometric pressure thing too? Now that I think about it, like do you have to come up slowly like divers do or or can you just shoot up and you're good? I want to say, yeah, probably. But honestly, it's been a while. So I can't remember exactly how long it took us to come back up. It wasn't, you know, we weren't shooting up from the bottom for sure. But yeah, 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 yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how, let's, let's take it back a little bit though. But as soon as I saw submersible, I'm like, well, we got to start there. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you get into like fish stuff? Like what was the attraction of that to you, you know, coming up? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in coastal Virginia around the Virginia beach area in a city called Chesapeake. So, you know, I just kind of grew up around the ocean and really loved going to the local marine science museum. Even when I started grad school, though, I wasn't quite sure whether it was going to be fisheries or some other aspect of, of marine biology that I was interested in. Um, but I lucked out again, you know, found a good project working on this fish, the barrel fish. And it kind of, you know, hooked me in terms of working on, on fisheries and then thinking about how we can better manage some of these fisheries. So the research I was doing, like I mentioned, was just trying to understand kind of how, how old this fish gets. We found that it lives up to about 85 years and it has a really um, high age at maturity. So we knew that it's, gonna, it's difficult to manage because it could be overfished pretty easily. And that kind of got me interested in thinking about how we manage fish in general. Um, so the management connection was kind of there for you right away. Yeah, working directly with the Department of Natural Resources, there was a you know kind of management interest for a lot of the research that's done there. Yeah, that's kind of was with me. So like I, I started working on that the, the project with uh, so Kelly and I um, uh, share a share a, an advisor. My master's advisor was her PhD advisor. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so uh, uh, we were working on a project with a, a imperiled species of sucker. And yeah, it was, we worked with South Carolina DNR also, actually, now that I think about it, and, and some other people. And that management was built right in because to me, it's that's the a lot of the, I guess, the, the so what in addition to the what, right? Yeah, exactly. And then, um, so then you went to UGA and, and uh, you sort of, is that when you moved into, no, at UGA, when did you move into freshwater side? Was that at UGA or was that, was that later? That was later. Um, so UGA, I did move kind of inland a little bit. I was working in estuarine systems there. Um, so yeah, that was with um, Cecil Jennings, who has recently retired, but was the, the head of the Georgia co-op unit there. And um, that project was looking at impounded wetlands that are managed for uh, waterfowl and shorebirds. So these are wetlands that actually had been impounded since I want to say maybe the 16 or 1700s for rice cultivation. And then they kind of, they used the same technology they had back then, which obviously was great technology, but it was this idea of moving, having these trunks that move water in and out based on the tidal cycles and they could move the water in and out to grow food for these birds. Um, so we were looking at the fish within these structures and found that basically, you know, they, they drain them into canals during the summer. The water gets pretty low in oxygen. The fish basically die over the summer. <laughs> so um, that, that was kind of the, the disappointing part of the project was finding how many fish die in these structures. But it did, again, kind of lend itself to thinking about management. How can we manage these things for more than one objective? Can we manage them to still, you know, promote 
the food for the birds that use them as their either migratory migratory birds or shorebirds or and then can we also think about better ways to manage them for for the fish um, a lot of these fish are things like young of the year you know tarpon or spot or croaker that um, that move into the estuary as um, as larvae and then move out after their first year or so um, yeah it was really an, an interesting project it was a lot of time spent trying to figure out how to even sample the fish in these things, but we finally figured it out. And, and yeah, so it was, it was fun. It's a beautiful area to work in as well. Was the sampling challenge, was that because of like depth and there was just a bunch of junk in the way, like trees or whatever, or was it? Yeah. It was more, so these things are pretty clear. They're small canals that we're sampling, um, but they were too saline to really do a good job with a, a shocker. They're very difficult to kind of get larger vessels into as well as <laughs> some of these, you know, canals will maybe be like 10 feet wide. Um, and so then we, we tried gill nets and things like that, but the, we're just not capturing the, the small fish. So we did end up using some rotenone to, <laughs> to sample these things. And, um, we sampled, you know, small sections with rotenone and, and then neutralized it afterwards. But... Uh, rotenoning with Cecil. Oh my goodness. He had this one project. What was the big lake? It has a different oh, name. Yeah, Clark Hill. Yes, I got yeah, to work yeah, yeah. on that too. And, <laughs> yep, yep. And so uh, they got uh, just kind of a re- uh, uh, standing contract with the DNRs or whatever. They would wrote known these different coves. So what wrote known is, maybe Kelly, you can fill me on details, but essentially what it is, is it some sort of chemical that I think pres- makes it so fish can no longer breathe, get oxygen from the water. Right, um, yeah. Uh, through the use of the power of chemistry. And and so what you do is you like you you tent off or you net off a cove in a lake is what we were doing. And and you put some sort of antidote chemical, I think, on the other side of the net. Mm-hmm. And then you put the rope known in the cove. And on the first day, like a bunch of fish will die and float up to the top and that's all fine. And you get them and it's all bluegill and you just have to figure out what kind of bluegill or it's all sunfish. And uh, you write down, you know, Leopomus species or, or if you're really good, you can identify them. Um, but but nobody actually can. Um, Kelly probably could. Anyway, no, and, and, <laughs> and then the problem is the first day is all fine, but then there's a second day. And uh, the fish that were slower to float up or floated up overnight, and they develop a certain um, stench, I yeah, think. that's yeah. a good word. And then, yeah, and then there's a third day. And uh, the third day is the day for the undergraduate technicians and not the graduate students, <laughs> because by the third yeah. day, things are, are bleak. They're pretty um, ripe, yeah. Is this ethical? Is this ethical? Yeah, <laughs> it just sounds so mean. You're just like in order to get your sample, you're just killing off a ton of them. I know. So the whole goal with any of that sampling is really to get a, a handle on what's going on with the entire fish community. Um, and these coves are not super large. I mean, these are huge reservoirs we were working in in Georgia. Uh, it's on the, the border of Georgia and South Carolina. I want to say that that lake, someone told me one time that it had more coastline than the coast of California. So it's a quite a large system. Um, and so it's a small you know, area that you're trying to just get a handle on what's going on with the entire fish community. It's not um, used that often, but sometimes it's the, 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 the thing you have that you can use to, to get a sense of what's going on. Uh, luckily with my project in the impounded wetlands, I mean, luckily, I guess we had so many alligators and birds around <laughs> that we couldn't do a second day pickup because they would just mow through everything <laughs> overnight. So, yeah, there was no no need to pick up anything dead the next day. Somebody else had already eaten it. At least they were being yeah. used. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, no, it's a good question. Open is always worth thinking about. Right. Um, but you, you can't go into fish biology without getting comfortable with the fact that over the course of your life, you will kill 
Yeah, you do have to you do have to kill some fish to get a handle of what's going on. I felt a little better with my own project that knowing that these fish likely weren't going to make it through the summer anyway. So um, I was bearing them that death, I guess. And so then, um, but so, all right, all right. So I could reminisce about my days, road noning coves for, for hours. Um, and, uh, but um, I think that that's not the purpose that we're here. And so the, then you moved on to the Great Lakes where you are now, right? How did that, was that just because there was a job at Michigan State and um, you being awesome got that? Or was there, did you want to move into this area? Um, probably, so yes, I, I think that it's a really great opportunity for me in terms of the fit. So in between, you know, getting my PhD and coming here, I actually did a postdoc uh, at Cornell and the New York co-op unit, but it was, had nothing to do with fish. So uh, I did a lot of structured decision-making work for things like turkey and deer harvest management and thinking about endangered birds and stuff like that, which was really cool. But then coming off of that and trying to find a position in fisheries, I feel like a lot of times people look at my CV and say, well, she's been working on deer. Why is she applying for this job as a fisheries scientist? Um, but I work now in the Quantitative Fisheries Center, which is part of the Department of Fisheries Wildlife at, at MSU. And um, part of our goal is, is helping um, agencies around the Great Lakes to, you know, with their quantitative needs and to help them make decisions using things like decision analysis. So um, they recognized what I'd been doing and why, you know, I still would be a good fit, even though I had spent a couple of years thinking about uh, deer population dynamics rather than the population dynamics of fish. So um, I think it was just a really great fit um, to, to work here coming off of, of those other experiences in my, my education. Help us understand what decision analysis is and how you, you use that. Yeah. So you'll kind of hear me say inter interchangeably decision analysis or structured decision making. Um, but the goal with all of that is to help uh, decision makers to walk through a series of steps to more transparently come to a, a decision. And so the way we do that is helping them to first kind of think about what the actual problem is, what is the decision that needs to be made, you know, all the aspects that you might not consider when you start to think about a decision, like who are the stakeholders, who are the actual decision makers, what's the spatial scale of this decision, um, how often is this decision going to be made, all of these things that people don't often articulate when they need to make a management decision, and then it comes back to haunt them later because they realize they weren't all on the same page about what the decision was they were trying to make in the first place. And then we ask them to say, what are your values? What are the things that you want to achieve? What are these, these objectives that we would say, if they're achieved, would solve the problem? And then we finally get to the point where we say, what are the actions that we could take to solve those, those objectives, to achieve those objectives? So we call it values-based because we're not jumping straight to the, to the decision points, not jumping straight to the actions. Um, then we spend a lot of time thinking about the, the modeling. So how can we predict how each action we could evaluate would um, would help us to achieve those objectives. So lots of quantitative modeling, working with experts, um, digging into different data sources, and lots of different ways to think about just predicting how these different actions could achieve our objectives or not. Then we get to the trade-offs where we find that often um, there's not one action that best achieves everything, everything everyone wants. So then how do we make those trade-offs based on what we now know could happen with these different actions? Um, the whole goal is really just to break the decision down to work through the pieces of it rather than trying to think about it all with, when it's more difficult when you're just thinking about it all at one time rather than in, in small chunks. 
um, where you can kind of be a little more deliberate about it. Can you give like a real life example of one of the decisions you've helped people make in the Great Lakes? <laughs> yeah, sure. So the one the one that I've been thinking about a little uh, recently uh, it revolves around invasive Asian carps. So you know you see you've seen the videos maybe of the the silver car knocking people out of their lake out of their boats into the lakes and things like that. So the the one species that we actually have in the Great Lakes right now is grass carp, um, which is not knocking people out of their boats, but is still you know a concern because it you know consumes the vegetation that other fish and birds and things like that might use during their life cycle. Um, so grass carp are reproducing now in Lake Erie, and there's a lot of concern about well, how do we respond to this fish and, and at least control the numbers, if not eradicate it. So we worked with uh, groups around Lake Erie, all the different agencies and researchers that have been thinking about this problem to walk through that same series of steps. So, you know, we, we define the problem in terms of it being Lake Erie, the decision makers are all the agencies that have decision-making authority on Lake Erie. Uh, we identified objectives related to like ecological things like containing the population from growing or from moving into the other lakes. We had economic objective that was mostly not spending all the money in the world to do it. Uh, we, you know, they, they wanted to have the money to do it, but we also recognized that any money spent in a management agency on one thing is not available for something else. Um, and then we had objectives related to things like collateral damage from the actions you should, you could take. So you might like spread some sort of piscicide or like rotenone to kill that fish, but then you'd be, be damaging other parts of the ecosystem, like removing fish that you might want to have there. Um, so thinking about that in terms of, you know, threatened and endangered species, in terms of stakeholder needs, like uh, fishers who might be affected by the things that we could do, um, all those kinds of things came into the objectives. And so in this case, we evaluated some scenarios because one thing we found is that we weren't really sure. We had tons of ideas about things to do, but because it's an invasive species, nobody really knew exactly how these things might work out. It's a new ecosystem that this fish is coming into. So we spent some time trying to understand kind of how effective do we need to be to achieve our goals. And so that um, that's kind of where we landed at the end. You know, so we said we need to know more about how effective our gear are. Is it doing the job that it needs to do or do we need to come up with something else? So now we're kind of doing some gear evaluation surveys and trying to understand how effective we can be. That's kind of one of the examples there. I mean, so this just sounds like you get a ton of people in the room, right? Um, and I can tell you came from Cornell now that I think about it, because it sounds like classic stuff with like Decker and, and you know, in the Human Dimensions Lab. Oh, right? yes, it's, definitely. It's, yeah. yeah. I worked with Dan on some of that stuff. And <laughs> there. Uh, so it's a bunch of people in a room in a lot of meetings, it sounds like, right? And and I imagine you, you would never admit to this, of course, but I imagine there are occasionally excruciating meetings. Um, how do you, how do you, uh, which is my words, not yours, but how do you... Um, how do you decide who even to bring into the room for that kind of stuff? Like, it seems like you could have the whole universe there, right? You could. Um, and that's a really good question. I think it's something that we're still kind of, in some ways, struggling with in the decision analysis for natural resources world. So the grass carp pro project, you know, the people that we brought into the room were managers and biologists that worked for either a state or federal agency or or pro provincial agency on the, the Canadian side or that um, were, you know, university researchers. So that one was a little bit more constrained in terms of, I mean, we still had a lot of people there, but, um, you know, largely professionals in the, the management world. Um, but I think, you know, when we started to try to think about some of these other decisions related to, you know, harvesting fish or, or things that are more um, 
that would be more important or more interesting to anglers or other stakeholders, you know, um, trying to think about how you choose the people in the room, I think really can influence the decision that that comes out of it, right? And so um, I think there's a lot of work still being done on trying to think more about the social science side of decision making and how to integrate that, that social science into the, the ecological science that, you know, we kind of have a, a handle on. We may, not, we may not know what's going on with the particular fish species, but we know how to create models. We know how to make predictions and evaluate those uncertainties, but working with more of the stakeholders and rights holders in the Great Lakes, we have a lot of different, you know, indigenous groups that have, um, you know, rights towards some of these different, um, or towards our fisheries and wildlife resources. So trying to bring all those different viewpoints in the room is difficult and, and, you know, not perfect. But it's also like a real balance, right? Like I can see an ethics case for a lot of the, you know, like, like thinking about just ethically who should be involved, but also, I mean, you know, at some point, yeah, you got to balance uh, uh, breadth with and depth with actually getting stuff done too. You do. And it, and it, does, it does come down to trying to build trust with people too, both for us as the facilitators and among each other. So, yeah. It's... Yeah. That's what it reminds me a lot of. We do a lot of work in AOC's areas of concern. And uh, we think about that with the diverse stakeholder groups there and the work that's being done. And a lot of it, a lot of it's angler focused because that's a real notable user group. Right. But, right. but yeah. um, thinking about building trust in, in other groups as well, or how do you measure trust? Um, uh, yeah, it's hard. Actually a guy, Mark, um, Mark Stern in your hometown or home state of Virginia, he's at Virginia tech. Now uh, he does interesting work on trust and natural resource management. Yeah, I have to check that out. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that your work makes me think of that and different types of trust and how that can be uh, evaluated and things like that. Hmm. And so, so we do uh, SDM, as I call it, mm-hmm. um, SDM. And so the, with the grass card, what are, what are other like systems where, or, you know, systems, what is the right word? Cases, model, what, places where you apply that, whatever. Sure. The, Any yeah. of that is fine. <laughs> okay. So I will say that, you know, coming into working at the Quantitative Fisheries Center or the QFC um, was great because the Great Lakes region has already been primed from my predecessor, Mike Jones, who just retired, um, who's been working on these kinds of same structured decision-making or decision analytic issues with people around the Great Lakes for years. So um, it's a really great system to work in because they kind of want this, this kind of help with making decisions. Um, and so, you know, we've got problems where we're working on stocking salmonids in Lake Michigan or a little bit in Lake Huron. We're thinking about um, what are some of the other ones. I've got a new project that I've just started where we're trying to understand how we can ha- make Michigan's cold water streams more resilient to the changing ecosystem. So specifically, you know, not only climate change, but largely focused on climate change and like land use change. And so we're starting to work with um, different stakeholders around the Osable River and in, in Michigan on trying as a first case study, how can we think about ways to make the fishery and, you know, with it, the whole ecosystem more resilient to climate change. I've been thinking about things like walleye harvest. We've been working with Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and different um, rights and user groups up there uh, to to think about how best to harvest walleye and change their har- walleye harvest management plan that's been in place for like 20 years and needs some revisions. Um, so working with uh, the kind of fishery management zone councils and the uh, um, First Nations groups and, and Métis Nations groups to try to, to to get at their goals and objectives and use that towards making a new management plan. So there's a couple of examples anyway of, of things that we've got going on. It feels like structured decision-making can be applied to so many different things. So how do you decide, you know, because you're all about decisions, how do you decide what decisions actually need this kind of framework? 
I think one of the biggest things, it does, it gets back a little bit to that trusting and just whether a group is, so I have this great graph that I teach this class in instructional decision-making for graduate students. And I didn't make the graph, but uh, one of my colleagues did. And it kind of shows like when you're in the, the realm of structured decision-making, but if, you know, if you can't get a group to even agree kind of on what the objectives are or what the science is telling you, then you may need maybe outside the bounds of SCM, you may be more in kind of like conflict resolution or um, they call it like joint fact finding, which I've never done, but, you know, I think just there's a, a realm in which, you know, you've got tangible objectives you can work towards achieving and you will agree that this is at least the data that are available. Um, then you can, it's, it's useful to, to do that <laughs> process, but. So in, in this modern age, it seems like the structured decision-making is becoming harder and harder um, since agreeing on facts seems to be uh, something we do less, less and less. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a cool tool. Like, so if people want to go and find out more about structured decision-making, is there, is there, is, is this the kind of thing where there is like a popular book on it or is it, do you got to go to the literature and. So there is a really nice book and I think it's actually called Structured Decision-Making. It's, yeah, but there's a group um, in British Columbia that wrote a book that, it, I mean, it's still like towards science and natural resources decision-making, but it's still kind of accessible. There's also um, a book by Hammond who, from 1999. I think it's called Making Hard Choices or something like that. And it talks about, you know, things like making decisions for buying a house or, you know, how, how you could use the tenets of decision analysis for life choices, which I'm not great at doing. <laughs> here we go. Yep. So here's structured decision-making, uh, practical guide to environmental management choices. Yeah. So that one's more, if you're interested in it for natural resources, decision-making, it's like a good first choice. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Um, and we'll put also a link to what is it called? Making hard choices. I think that's the name of uh, it. I'm going to write one called punting on hard choices, a way to hit middle age and be vaguely dissatisfied. It'll be good. Bestseller. <laughs> but, um, uh, good. Well, we'll put links to those in our show notes, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash uh, 43, 43, because this is episode 43, believe it or not. So I just looked it up. That is actually called smart choices, not making ah, hard choices. Smart you choices. See, oh, that, to me, those are easy choices. Then. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's, the one that's, that's quite useful. Well, Kelly, this is really interesting um, stuff, and it sounds like a really powerful tool that I'm excited to see how it, it develops over time. But that's actually not why we invited you here uh, on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. Huh. The reason, no, it's not. It's not. The reason we invite you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. The first of which is this. If you could have a, uh, if you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? So that's an easy answer. I would say the sandwich for sure. But my husband, who is across the hall from me right now, would be appalled that I would choose a sandwich over a donut. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Sandwich. So you were at uh, Michigan State. So, I mean, you're in East Lansing. Are you in East I Lansing? Am. Yeah. I'm all right. So when I go to visit, I'm going to visit all-star guest Brian Roth, uh, who's in the Teach Me About the Great Lakes Hall of Fame. And then when I'm done talking with Brian, um, and he wants a cheesesteak. He's all about the cheesesteak sandwich, he said. Uh, and he has strong opinions on cheesesteaks. So I've had a cheesesteak sandwich. Uh, we wrote Nona Cove, pick up a bunch of dead fish, have a cheesesteak, wake <laughs> up the next day, more dead fish, and I want another lunch because nothing like wrote known to make you want lunch. Where should I go to get a really great sandwich in huh. East Lansing? In East Lansing. There are, I would say, more than one good option for a good sandwich, but um, I do like Jersey Giant, it's, and it's a kind of a local chain. 
tons of um, they have giant sandwiches that are, are quite good and you can customize them any way you want i love so. that you just put like three feet in between your two hands <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I can eat half of one and i'm i'm too full so yeah all right i will go in and i'll order the titular giant um fantastic and then now uh, the second question is, is this so you've been in the great lakes now for a, a number of years um not as many as you will be hopefully for our sake since you're doing such great work um, is there like a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? And, and if so, what, what makes it special to you? Yeah, so that's a really good question because so I've been here five years um, and I would say that I haven't visited as much of the Great Lakes as one should. So in some ways, I feel like your listeners may be able to provide me with more options. But um, I was thinking about Hashtag that. One of the assistant prof life. Is right. I know. Saying. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I was trying to think about this Good Harbor Beach on, on Lake Michigan, I think is probably one of my favorite places. It's the, um, I, we used to have a, have a friend that used to live in Traverse City and she would take us there to go to the beach. And it was my first um, time swimming in the Great Lakes, which was quite cold um, and not what I was used to. But it's a, it's a really, you know, beautiful area. There's not a lot of people on the beach. Um, can look for Petoskey stones, find lots of of Petoskey stones. Um, Wait, what's a Petoskey stone? I don't know what a Petoskey stone isn't is. Isn't the one where they have like the weird little like circles of different colors? They on do. Them? Yeah. So Petoskey stones are um, unique to the kind of a northern lower peninsula of Michigan. Um, there's actually a town called Petoskey, but they are um, coral the, from back when there was salt oh, water. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So and, you know, when you pick them up, you can see them better when they're wet. It's kind of hard to see all of the, like, little, you can see all the pieces where how it looks like, you know, coral after it has, uh, so it's fossil coral from the Great Lakes. Um, so it's super exciting when you find one on the beach, being a, a nerd about all things biology. But it's, and it's the state stone of Michigan. Look at that. Look at that. All right. When I visited one of our um, old employees, Jay, who moved out to, what's the, is it Boy Blanc Island in Michigan? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we picked up Petoskey stones and pudding stones. So if you find pudding stones, they're also very fun. All right. What's a pudding stone? Look at this. I'm learning so much about stones. Anytime I talk to Hope, I'm learning about stones. I think they have like little red dots on them. Oh, okay. Pudding? like Yeah, just spelled like pudding that you eat <laughs> but they have little red pieces oh neat i'll have to check those next time too <laughs> uh great well uh i've learned so much is there a place you want to send people to find out more about your work do you do a social media or is there a website um so we do the qfc has a website um you can google us quantitative fisheries center michigan state university i have a, a, a twitter handle if you know occasionally i tweet things about science <laughs> it's um, at k filer robinson uh, great. Well, Dr. Kelly Robinson, Assistant Professor at the Quantitative Fisheries Center in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Wildlife, excuse me, at Michigan State University. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. Structured decision-making hope. That's pretty, pretty important stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I make structured decisions every day of my life. Well, Actually, completely that's the main difference. I was going to say, wait a minute. Holy hell. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? 
if if that's structured decision making, what am I doing? Yeah, although what's really cool about it is it seems like she's working on, you know, you can apply it to all these big issues, kind of like you were saying, right? I mean, if you look, she's looking at lamprey. She's looking at carp. She's looking at, you know, uh, salmonid stocking, which are, you know, the trouts and things like that. So if you've read Death and Life of the Great, basically she went chapter by chapter through Death and Life, all these big issues and is um is 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 sort of working on those so that's that's uh that's big important work yeah it almost sounds like they need somebody like her in every agency <laughs> working in the great lakes possible so i'm surprised i've heard of structured decision making yeah it's a way of doing it for i mean the problem is well agencies you know it's hard to get agencies to move right um because they have mandates and 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 things like that and then it's also it's an expensive time consuming process as part of it i mean not that expensive it's expensive in terms of time and mm-hmm. having all these meetings and, and things like that and that's kind of a, a bear but i agree i agree uh, uh I, I think hopefully you'll see a lot more of that and formally modeling decisions and all that stuff and uh, we'll see. Yeah. So I was thinking with the road gnomes and the electro fishing, we talked about that. Have you, have you gone electro fishing? Is that something you've done? I remember you had waders, right? I do have waders. I have not been electro fishing. Oh. <laughs> but electro fishing, they don't die, right? So you're just like kind of shocking them, incapacitating them, and then getting your sample and putting them back. That is generally true. But the little ones, not going to lie, uh, the little ones. <laughs> It's just carnage it's out there. Sad. I hate so, so there's yeah, there's two types. It depends on what one. Like the the boat electroshocker, and I don't know the physics behind this. So people can email us at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail dot com, and I'll uh, I'll include your uh, I'll respond to your email in the next episode maybe. Um, but but the boat electroshockers, like uh, they I think they have a little more oomph than the backpack ones, and so you ride on a boat, and that's where we we're trying to get like the big red horse suckers, and and you'll see just trails of fish that we'll assume. Yeah, revive kind of later. Um, but the problem with the backpack ones is you're in the water. And I swear to freaking God, two things. One, my waders always have hole in them, which means that you get a little bit of water in your waiter and also just a little, a little, a little of electricity. <laughs> but but the worst thing is, is I'm such a moron that like if, if I don't have gloves, you can get gloves, but you don't always have the gloves. And so you want to keep your hands like out of the water, right? Um, but I'll see a fish that we're looking for, like a target species swimming by. And so I'll have one hand, I'll let go of the electroshocker and I'll grab the, f- this has happened every time I go electro fishing. <laughs> and so you grab the fish and you're like, or, or, you know, maybe I remember to put mine, but I forget that I'm with a whole group of people all carrying a, you know, one of these Smith root backpack shockers. So I have grabbed electro fishing water. Uh, like dozens of times in my, I'm, I'm just horror. This is why I went into social science. I was like, I'm not cut out for this. Like, keep getting fried. <laughs> Your state makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the hair came from too. Um, anyway, cool. Uh, let's see. Well, I think that is about it. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Um, it's uh, super fun to do this. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to start up the thing and uh, read the credits. And let's hope, would you like to read the credits? Yes, I'd love to read the credits. All right. All right. Hold on. So because of the audio difficulties we had, this all stays in, Quinn, so everybody can hear just how competent we are. Oh, um, you, won't be able to, you won't be able to hear the, um, the but there's going to be some music behind you. You won't be able to hear it, but Quinn will, and hopefully the audience will. Uh, but I have to find the music. And so when I say go, um, uh, then you're going to do it. Uh, so are you ready to roll? I'm so prepared. Okay, good. Um, then go. 
Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rainey Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport, and the show is edited mm-hmm. by M. Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline, because we totally have a hotline, at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening, and keep great in those lakes.